Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. Let's look at how we can organize a successful information security program that integrates business culture with people, process, and technology to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Hello, everybody. This is Sean Martin, host of the Redefining Cybersecurity podcast here on the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're very welcome to this new episode of the CISO Circuit Series. Uh, it's a collaboration between myself and and Michael, who's on with me. Good to see you, Michael. Hello. Good to see you, Sean. And uh, we, we try to do this roughly on a monthly basis, <laughs> where, we, where we get to talk about... Uh, the role of the CISO and, and things that are interesting. And uh, we've done a couple on our own and uh, we, we've decided to invite a good friend to join us. And as with a lot of things for me anyway, I get I get inspired by by posts on LinkedIn, not, not junk posts, but good posts from smart people that get a lot of engagement on the platform. And uh, Omar posted something about some some work he's doing with CMU and and working with some CISO students. And I'm like, this is a cool topic. Michael, let's see if Omar can slice some time out and uh, and share some of those uh, learnings with us here. On Yeah, that's, that was a, a, a great post. And uh, first of all, welcome, Omar. Uh, for those of you who do not know Omar uh, Kawaja, um, he is the well, long history as a CISO, uh, one of the beacons of light in the community, uh, extremely positive and brilliant. Uh, guy. I've gotten to know him over the last five or six years. Uh, he is currently the VP of security and field CISO at Databricks, um, a very successful technology company, uh, and is also uh, recently presented, as Sean mentioned, at the, the CMU uh, cohort. Um, he's on the faculty there for the CISO program, which, which uh, yeah, I'm a little biased because I've, I've worked with them before, but uh, they're by far one of the best, if not the best, uh, program in the, in the U.S. Uh, for aspiring CISOs and uh, continuing education in that. So um, first of all, welcome, Omar. I don't know if you wanted to further introduce yourself probably more appropriately, but we can jump in uh, to the topics as well. No, I uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's always fun to talk to people that are excited about cyber and trying to make lives of uh, other CISOs a little bit easier. So we uh, it's always less painful to learn from somebody else's mistakes since, uh, versus one's own. And I feel like if there's one superlative I can associate with myself as a CISO is it would be that I do not know any other CISO that's made nearly as many mistakes as I have. It's a badge of honor. 
It's a badge of honor. I'm gonna wear it proudly. It's the only one I have. <laughs> there you go. That's great. Yeah. Well, this um, this uh, list. I'm gonna actually uh, hand this over to you, Michael. I actually have to answer the door. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned this before. Hey, this is um, live TV kick, right here. Kick off so, with, for, with number um, one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things you brought up in the in the post, and if anyone hasn't seen the post, we can repost it as part of this. Um, uh, as this when we when you send this out, but the first thing you brought up was uh, CISOs are you know risk leaders first, security leaders second, uh, and you also mentioned uh, Thomas Aquinas quote, which I love. Um, would love to hear your thoughts around that. Uh, just some context around that. I have some I have some thoughts as well. I'd love to share, but yeah, just maybe open us yeah. up with that one. Yeah, you know, there's uh, there there's the most of us as CISOs likely grew up in the security program and. Prior to that, maybe we came from the application side or maybe we started our careers in the world of security, but we likely gravitated to some area of controls. Maybe it was on the network and the infrastructure side. Maybe it was on the application side. Maybe we sort of were more aligned to the GRC space, but we likely had some kind of focus and affinity towards a certain set of controls that we found our sort of technical expertise in. And then we, sort of grew up and became CISOs and started working uh, working in, in, a, in a very different role. And sometimes what happens is we, we continue to think that the controls are the most important thing. And that's sort of what security is, is it's a constellation of controls that make up the program. However, if we start to think of ourselves as risk leaders, all of a sudden we're not going to make controls and the technologies that uh, implement them the central thing in our lives, we're going to actually put the business and our customers at the, as the central thing in our lives. So uh, oftentimes security programs are referred to as information security and risk management. So that's what I call my program, ISRM. And so there's a Thomas Aquinas quote that does a nice job distinguishing between the two, which is if the job of a ship was to keep it from sinking, he would never leave harbor. <laughs> so from a security perspective, if my goal is to secure the company, that's not that hard. I just have to disconnect us from the Internet and we're super secure. But that's not the job of secure of, of the CISO isn't security. It's actually risk management. It's um, and I was uh, on uh, hosting a session yesterday with about 30 college students and we were talking about the CIA triad. And one of them said, well, if you make something way too confidential, then it's no longer available. So how do you do that? And I said, well, that's a really good point. That's sort of the job of a CISO and as a security leader is to say, how do I make this super confidential, but I don't actually take away from availability because these can seem like they're at odds with each other. And that's the job of risk management is to say, we're going to go, we're going to go do this. And we are going to figure out exactly what controls you need to do this safely and with minimal disruption along the way. Yeah, I love it. And I've, I've been saying for, for years now, but um, it is about risk management. And uh, the CISOs that are able to narrate risk into digestible bites and appetizers for the business, um, they, they've honed that skill. That's that's really a superpower that, um, that most don't think about uh, and that others are aspiring to get to, uh, this sort of chief translation officer model. Yeah. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of folks try to do it just with the security. And it really is about business risk, right? 
Um, so I appreciate that. But by the way, you, you mentioned uh, in the post uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, quote. So what was the quote? I always love to. Uh, uh, the the, the quote was that uh, if the job of a ship's captain was to keep it from sinking, he would Got never it. leave harbor. Got it. I, that's why I, I thought you mentioned. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, sorrow can be alleviated by good sleep, a bath and a good glass of wine. Uh, nice. Uh, nice. <laughs> I like that one. That's pretty good. I like his quotes. So awesome. Um, well, I wanted I wanted to pick your brain on on this point. So, were there any stories shared? Any that you can reshare here? Because I know we've had a number of conversations uh, when you're deep in the healthcare space, and it, from my perspective, I know it's still a hard job, but it, it's easier to connect the story of technology and cybersecurity and risk to the outcomes when you can see a patient sitting there, right? And you ultimately you have to make a decision on how can I provide the best care? How can I protect that patient both in, in the operating room and when they're at home, perhaps even connecting through a yeah. through an online doctor session. So I, I, any yeah. stories from, from that session that you can share? Uh, yeah, I, I actually shared a story very, uh, very much akin to the, uh, to what you talked about. So I shared with them when, we acquired, when I was at Highmark Health, we were initially primarily insurance, Blue Cross Blue Shield companies, and then we acquired a bunch of hospitals. Eventually, we ended up with about 14 hospitals and a few hundred physician offices. And I marched in to the uh, meeting of the institute chairs that basically are, think of them as business unit heads across the hospital system, the head of cardiology and the head of medicine and the head of surgery and, and so on. And I said to them, hey, I'm going to come in and I'm going to deploy this amazing security program with all of these controls. And if I do that, we're going to prevent data breaches from happening. Hmm. And they looked at me and they said, we don't really care about data breaches. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? Like on the insurance side, we cared about data breaches. And don't you know that this company and this company and that company had breaches and those are really, really bad and it impacts customer confidence and it hurts our reputation. And they're like, no, none of that's true. Don't you know what we do in these buildings? We save people's lives. Who cares about privacy? And I was coming in as a security person pretending to understand the business. I'd never talked to the business. I just decided to tell the business what they cared about without actually listening. And so I went away and I said, they don't care about data breaches. They were unequivocal in telling me that. And I could talk about HIPAA and I could talk about OCR and they'd say, yeah, whatever. They don't care. And then about seven, eight months later, um, I did two things. One is I started to go spend time with doctors and I befriended them and would hang out with them and made my kids become friends with their kids just so I could have reasons to run into them on weekends. And then uh, ransomware started to happen. So I said, okay, let me take another take at this. So for seven, eight months, I said, if they don't want security, then I shouldn't give it to them because I am here to serve them. They aren't here to serve me. And even though I had this itch as a security person to go deploy all those controls because it would make my boxes and charts look nicer to say, I've got these controls in every business unit. I said, hey, there's this thing happening it disrupts business. And when it happens to organizations, they no longer have access to their technologies and their applications. And they turned around and they said, Omar, what the hell are you gonna do about that? <laughs> and I said, okay, so that is something you care about. And they're like, yes, where's our program? Like you can't do anything 
if anything disrupts our ability to deliver care to patients, that's bad. You've got to make sure that doesn't happen. So then I went away and I said, okay, what would a program look like to prevent ransomware? Um, and I went and did that because now I was addressing a risk the business cared about versus before I was addressing a risk that I cared about. Yeah, that's great. The old trial and error. Yeah. Uh, I want to, if I can, and, and Michael, you can obviously jump in here, but it, there, there's another another point, number four. Um, I don't know if, if you want to continue that story, or if there are other other stories you can wrap into it, but it, it's where you you begin the, the journey, right? Yeah. And I presume everybody's going to have some level of interest, some more than others. Um, you have to, at some point, describe down and describe up why you're doing something, how it works, how it might impact the way they do things yeah. now. So, and yeah, so the, the, the point specifically is efforts are often derailed because internal stakeholders nitpick on minutia and, and miss the big picture. Sound like you had the big picture sorted, but I'm wondering about the, that minutia detail. Yeah. So it's sort of, um, you know, um, like one, one, one example of this, I'll, I'll share maybe a couple metaphors because I love mixing metaphors and confusing people. Uh, the first one is, you know, I pointed at the stars and all my dog stared at was my finger, right? So that's one. The second is this sort of became clear to me, maybe this was five, six years ago. I'm sitting on the tarmac at Orlando airport. We're about to take off to get to, uh, to, get to Pittsburgh and the pilot comes on and goes through the regular stuff. He tells us that we have to shut off our cell phones or put them in airplane mode. And then he goes on to add this one detail, which I don't think I've ever heard a pilot share. So he says, we're gonna get to Pittsburgh at this time. We're gonna have a delayed departure. We're gonna make up the time. We're gonna be flying at this many feet. This is what the temperature is gonna be. And oh, by the way, we're going to be flying. The air pressure is going to be this many PSI. And at that point, I turn around to the passenger next to me and say, is that good? Is that bad? Like clearly the pilot wants us to give him some advice because I don't need to know that information for myself, but if the pilot is sharing it, the pilot must obviously be looking for, is this good or bad? And so we should figure out if the pilot needs to take a different route, go higher, go lower, delay the flight. And I'm like, that's kind of crazy. And, and that's sort of the equivalent of what we do way too often. So there's information and there's metrics that you need to know when you're a passenger in the passenger cabin, the business side of things. And if you're in the cockpit, you're flying the plane, you're running the security program, you're running the IT program, there's hundreds of different gauges that you're looking at. But what we do is we routinely invite the passengers into the cockpit and then we get annoyed because the business doesn't understand the gauges and they ask stupid questions like, why is that yellow? Why is that at zero? Shouldn't that be at 16? Shouldn't that be higher? I just Googled this, this should be there. And, and you're like, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't really wanna ask these questions. You guys are dumb. I hear this over and over again where CISOs think the business is dumb. I remember a CISO said, the business doesn't even understand the difference between EDR and antivirus, between network DLP and endpoint DLP. How dumb are they? No, no, the business isn't dumb. 
you're the dumb person that invited the business into the passenger cabin because they should never have heard those words. A passenger should never see those gauges ever. And what should happen is if I, as a passenger, don't feel comfortable, I, as the business, don't feel comfortable with whoever is running and piloting my plane, I shouldn't go in there and help him fly it. I should just go get a new pilot because I'm not a pilot. I'm not trained. And no matter how smart I think I am and how good I am at Googling things, I'm probably not going to be the best person to uh, land this plane safely. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And I, I can, I can picture uh, user awareness training on the plane. <laughs> so that's a whole thing. New, new users every day, <laughs> yet we're responsible for the safety of everybody yeah. else. Keep it, yeah. keep it that's, simple. That's why I have that laminated placard that you get to look at. That's what, that's all the awareness training you need. So yeah. yeah. Exactly. yeah. My good buddy at Symantec, we'd, we'd travel together and he'd say, oh, I need to turn this upside down so I can read it. Like it will be in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. This is um uh, Omar. Such a great. I by the way, I have the same uh, analogy. I, I love your 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 communication and the analogy. I uh, I'm a big fisherman and surf and I try to surf. I'm not a great surfer, but but, uh, but when I talk to uh, like my family, it's like you know it was windy uh, or it was choppy. And when I'm talking to other fishermen or surfers, I'm, I'm talking about swell sizes and time between the waves and wind waves and atmospheric pressure and. And because they want to know all that, they get it. They're in that, yeah. that piece. And um, but when I'm diving, how cold it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With, with the water temperatures at different water columns, right? And and it's so it's so technical. And I used to do that, and people would just their eyes would just gloss over, like, "Who cares? Did you catch a salmon or not?" That's all. Like, are we eating yeah. dinner or am I getting to go? <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, and, and Mike, yeah. what you just described is, you know, it has to be audience centric. And, and I could tell you my first six iterations of a metrics program, every single time I thought this was perfect until I realized what I was doing is I was trying to create a metrics dashboard for everyone. And I was imposing what I cared about and what I needed to know on all my stakeholders. And when I stopped and I said, no, no, I need the right set of metrics that the board cares about. I need another view for the business unit leaders. I need another view for the IT leaders and the platform owners. I need another view for the leaders that have people reporting up to them because they own the human risk. So once I identified the stakeholders, what they actually care about, what risk they actually own, and what actions I want them to take, I sliced and diced my metrics to be very specific to each one. And the moment I did that, I actually got them to start taking action versus pointing to stuff and saying, that's wrong. That doesn't make sense. I don't like this. I don't have control over that. We edited all of that stuff out and gave them the three, four, five things they actually cared about. And all of a sudden you get alignment and people actually want to want to want to do the things you want them to do, because now they feel like a they've got responsibility for it. And B, they actually have the ability to actually go do things. And who doesn't want to have someone else have a metrics dashboard that makes them look good and shows the progress they're making. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for, for a lot of CISOs and people have heard me say this before, but it's, it's, um, it's almost like a math equation. You have to have the exact nuance in the level of communication at the right audience. You have to, uh, you have to have the right awareness as to who your audience is and what uh, is digestible and you need to be able to perform and execute on the collaboration. So exactly. communication plus, Awareness plus collaboration equals sponsorship. That that's how you yeah. get funded. Um, 
And sponsorship plus the company's prioritization, it equals success for the CISO. Uh, unfortunately, only half of that is under the control of the CISO, yeah. but, um, but they have to be perfect at that part. And uh, I think a lot of people miss that piece. It's, it's all three of those things. It's communication, awareness, and collaboration, all in sync uh, in, in different examples. And by the way, that changes from one meeting to the next, from one hour to the next, from one incident to the next. Um, and that's when you find out, uh, you know, who you, who your team is, who your sponsors are and what you're really made of as a leader in those, you know, kind of wartime issues. But I, I think it's a great point, um, that, yeah. you, that you make on that. Yeah. And you know, the, the point that you just made Mike on so much of it, you can't do yourself, the collaboration piece, the others, you have to rely on folks outside of your organization as the CISO. And I think this was point number five that I made in the post is that there is a inverse proportional relationship between the amount of collaboration required outside the department and the maturity of that particular cyber function. So my favorite example is we're phenomenal at identifying vulnerabilities, at running mm -hmm. scans and at running red teaming and pen testing. However, we're not nearly as good when it comes to actually remediating findings and actually patching systems. One is wholly contained within the security, within the CISO org. The other one actually requires working with others. And that's true in example after example. Uh, we're way much more mature when we can do it all ourselves, a lot less mature when we need to actually collaborate with, uh, with others. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm a little biased, but I actually thought number five on your point was the most profound one on there because um, it's the most, it's the one that's the hardest to get. And by the way, I mean, now that you're you're in a different kind of role now, I'm not. I know this isn't uh, uh, interviewing you for that role, but <laughs> the fact that you have this this field CISO view, which is super cool, because I only know you before this as the pure operator and strategic and technical leader, right? And now you have this other this other gear that you get to go deploy these these this type of communication. I'm curious, has that has that been a change for you um, with with talking about this and these yeah, type of concepts? Know, the, the first three, four months were a really big struggle because I really had to change a few gears and, and operate it sort of in a very different world, different culture, different industry, different dynamics, different stakeholders, different relationships. So um, just getting used to that, figuring that out. I think what really helped me, Mike, is along the way, one of my mentors said to me at one point uh, after she heard me stumble through what I thought my role was as a field CISO because I was really just figuring it out. I hope my boss is not listening to this. Um, but, um, but she said, Omar, so what you're saying is your job is to be a CISO for CISOs. I'm like, that actually sounds really exciting. I think I know how to do that. Mm -hmm. So like when I frame it that way is my job is to go out and help CISOs be successful particularly when it comes to how they are managing their data, how they're going down the path of AI. And so much of being a CISO is exactly that. So as I think of these points, these are some of the things I talk to CISOs about on a regular basis. It's maybe in the last 30 days, I've probably connected uh, directly, mostly through one-on-ones with maybe about 50 or 60 different CISOs all across the globe. And so I love doing this stuff. I love then sharing the learnings or hearing about their challenges and just brainstorming through it and helping them sort of unpack things. And really like my goal is I want them to figure out the solution themselves. If I give it to them, that's not making them a better CISO, that's just making them a better question asker. 
I want to coach them so that they can figure it out themselves and and become better and feel like they're getting they should get all the credit for it themselves. Yeah, you're, you're building a toolkit for him. And by the way, there, uh, your boss will hear this. There's no editing. I mean, Sean answered his door for crying out loud. So. <laughs> I, I took I a break that. from this. Beginning. Hopefully it was uh, like, you know, a florist or something. <laughs> yeah, UPS delivery, a very important package. Very important. Um, I, I want to connect this to point number three, um, because I think you now are making a bunch of new BFFs in your role and guiding them on how to make a bunch of new BFFs in their role. And the reason I want to bring this up now is it, it, it strikes me a bit that, yes, you want to have the collaboration and the communication and a common understanding. And one of the other points is on alignment. Um, do you actually need to be BFFs? Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, um, um, it's sort of, uh, here's my definition of a BFF. The definition of a BFF is someone that is going to be honest with you and someone that you can also confide in and feel safe sharing your sort of worries and concerns and weaknesses and vulnerabilities with. And, and to me, in many ways, a relationship, particularly when you have it with other executives, if it's any less than that, it's really hard for it to be valuable, right? Sort of the casual, you know, Sean, if you and I have a casual relationship and I just tell you the things that I know you want to hear, we're always going to be smiley and happy together and we're always going to laugh at each other's jokes and we're going to be cordial. And if someone asks you about me, you'll say, yeah, he's a really nice guy. And that's that. But to really get value out of a relationship, you know, I have to be willing to say, here's the things I suck at. These are the things that I'm struggling with. I can't really figure this out because until I show, I'm willing to show my vulnerabilities, I really can't truly have a growth mindset where I'm opening up and saying, Sean, here's now a bid, an opportunity for you to respond with, Omar, I might be able to help you with that. But if I'm not willing to tell you I've got weaknesses and I've got gaps and I don't feel safe doing that, then how real is our relationship going to be? How collaborative are we truly going to be if we go into work pretending to be, hey, I'm a grown up executive. I've solved all these problems and I want to show up with confidence. And anything that shows lack of confidence means that people are going to think I'm incompetent and I'm going to lose my power and my authority and I'll be out the door. Well, that's. That's not true. That's not how relationships are made. That's not how, you know, the most successful uh, executives and, and enterprises um, function. Yeah, and if you, if you think about it, there's a second part to that uh, point that I left out purposefully, which is perpetual curiosity. So kind of leading off of what you just described, what, what's, the re, what's the reason there's a relationship? If you're formally building one, it's to achieve better outcomes. Right? So if you don't have that curiosity, you lack excitement in achieving greater things and you just kind of go through the motions. So I don't know if you want to expand on, on that point. Yeah, I, I, I love that. It's, you know, this is actually advice I was just giving my uh, daughter over the weekend. And she is more introverted than, than not, kind of like uh, her dad had been most of his life. And I said, well, you have to cast away judgment. It's so easy for someone that's not willing to engage to look at others and cast judgment on them. 
that person doesn't know this, that person doesn't understand this, that person can't balance his budget, that person's own team doesn't like them, they don't know how to speak publicly, their presentation sucks, they forgot to send a weekly update, you know, whatever it is, but so much of what's what we are tempted to do and what's so easy to do is cast judgment on on others, that doesn't help build relationship. That's an obstacle to actually creating and opening relationships. The antidote to that, Sean, is, is exactly what you said. It's sort of this relentless curiosity. One of my favorite quotes from last year was um, a picture of a light switch, and it said, curiosity and judgment can't coexist. So you have to pick. You can either be curious or you can be judgmental. There's just no way to do both as, um, as, as human beings. And once we're curious, we likely will we'll spend time listening and hearing the other's point of view, right? So Sean, what makes you and Mike really good at interviewing other people is because you're genuinely curious. You're not coming with answers. You're not coming with judgment. You're coming in with, I genuinely want to learn and figure things out. And when you do that, you sort of endear yourself to others Others are way more willing to be open. They're disarmed. You know, if you weren't good at your jobs, I probably wouldn't be sharing this openly, but I am because you are showing, uh, you are showing relentless curiosity. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, yeah. I'm a little judgy. Absolutely. Sean's not as judgy as I am. But <laughs> um, well, that was very vulnerable of you to admit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everyone will be, everyone will be judging me on that. Um, I reserve my judgment so, for Michael. Yeah. Uh, just to, I love this. This is a great discussion. Uh, a couple points to make uh, just for the CISOs out there that might be listening to this. Um, one, um, this part of the role that Omar is talking about is not supposed to be all roses. It's probably not going to be very fun and it's completely out of your comfort zone. So that's perfectly okay, right? Um, going out and creating BFFs in an organization may be the first time you've ever flexed that muscle. So just know that and everyone's learning how to do it at the same time. Um, but I will say that one of the superpowers that a CISO time and time always shows is their curiosity and their ability to ask the right question at the right time. Um, probably better than any other executive that I've seen in the, in the organization, especially a technical executive. Um, and so the time that you should be curious, uh, maybe not wait uh, until you're in the job, but actually start that at the interview process, right? Um, if you're worried about asking questions or offering examples during an interview because you might you know, lessen your chances, um, just really start thinking about some of the questions you wanna ask about the business, being really curious. One of my favorite interview questions is, uh, you know, talk about a relationship that you first had at a company where it was a disaster or you felt like it was going to be a disaster, um, but you made it into a strong uh, workable relationship. Uh, what does that look like now? And how did you go ahead and do that? It has nothing to do with technology, has nothing to do with, it's just, it's just people communicating with people um, from different walks of life, from different um, you know, spaces in, in, in the world. And I, I think that's uh, just for CISOs to understand, this is not gonna be easy and to constantly work on that craft of, of asking the right questions, showing that you're curious. I just don't think that you're curious, but actually have to execute on it. So Awesome. Hey, can I share like a couple of very specific techniques? Because yeah. I know I would be judging myself for saying all of these really nice things that, of course, everyone already knows these are true. More best friends are going to be better. But how do you actually make them? So I'll share a couple of uh, ways that almost always have uh, have worked for me. 
Uh, one is when you go to talk to someone is, uh, is, is do what Mike says, which is be curious. So I was sitting with the head of cardiology. And when you sit in a doctor's office, you see this more than in anybody else's office. Everything on the walls is about them. Unless it's an OBGYN or a, or a pediatrician, you're probably not even going to see a picture of their own family in their office. No offense to any doctors that may be uh, that may be listening, um, and it's, um, but uh, so it's all about them. And so you have to like have some situational awareness to know what's going to work. So if you're going to meet with someone that has a big ego, which is a pretty good chance that they're going to have a big ego if they happen to be an executive working in an enterprise. One of the best things to do is just sit there and ask them a question. I had a one hour meeting with the head of cardiology. This person could be making ungodly amounts of money during that one hour that he chose to be with me versus going and doing a procedure in the uh, OR. And so I'm thinking he booked an hour, which is a nice courtesy, but within 20, 30 minutes, he's going to fake a text or his assistant is going to walk in and say, you know, doctor needs to go. Omar, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. Maybe we'll reschedule later and later would never happen. I had a meeting with him for an entire hour, which I was absolutely shocked that he would give me that much time. I mean, you know how hard it is to get an appointment with a with a specialist. Imagine getting a meeting with a specialist where that specialist is physician is getting paid exactly zero dollars and it lasting an entire hour versus the three minutes you typically get with a uh, with a with a specialist doctor. All I did is I was curious about cardiology. I mean, we all have hearts. How often do you get to meet the head of cardiology? I was like, this is an amazing opportunity. I just talked about heart cardiology, OR, working in hospitals. And he just kept talking and talking and talking because cardiologists love to talk about themselves. And at the 45 minute mark, something magical happened. And everyone has this point at which they say, wait a minute. I've been talking a lot about myself. What about you? What do you do? I'm curious, how can we work together? But the key is to not talk an iota about yourself until you get that signal from the other person. And even at that point, what you should say is, no, I really wanna talk about you. Let them insist. And then at some point give in and say, well, since you really want me to talk about me and what I do in the security program, I'm happy to do it. So like that stamina to be inquisitive and don't ask, uh, don't, uh, don't start talking until the other person says so. Rely on the fact that humans are reciprocal animals. That's how we're wired. At some point that reciprocity is gonna kick in. That's one. The other is uh, find the person that is your biggest detractor that will sit in meetings and you're thinking, I can't wait for this person to retire or go get another job. Find that person. We all have that hopefully one, maybe not more than one person that, uh, that exists. I had this, I was sitting in a meeting with chief medical officers and one of them literally started yelling at me in the middle of the meeting. And I had the opportunity, the other CMOs felt so embarrassed, they tried to get him to be quiet. And I said, no, let him keep going. And so this person's coming at me. I could explain to you all the reasons why he was wrong, but I didn't stop him. I let him keep going. And what you want to do with that person is they're actually the easiest to turn into your biggest champion. I had uh, an expert on my team in change management, and he shared something with me, which took me about two years to actually understand, because on its surface, it does not feel like it should ever work, but I promise you it does. He said, 
resistance is the paradox of commitment. And so if you want someone to commit to anything, give them lots and lots of opportunity to resist and to tell you that what you're doing is stupid, it's horrible, it's bad, and here's why it won't work. I don't know why this works, but I can promise you what is happening in people's mind. Every time they're telling you your idea is bad, they're literally moving up what the change experts call the commitment curve. That's actually what's happening. So giving people that safe space to say, tell me everything that's bad, and I am just going to get a piece of paper and I'm going to write down everything that, that's bad, and I'm going to come back to you with a plan, you will find that it actually works wonders. But again, you have to do it sincerely. You have to do it genuinely. You want to be curious and willing to, willing to listen to them. Um, and amazing things happen. They turn, I, I had the same CMO who I was trying to get aligned on our MDM policy so we could manage the doctor's phone. He said, we'll never do that. You're going to make us work too much. We don't trust you on and on. And then at the next meeting, I got to him. I said, let's just have a one-on-one, -on -one. walk me through it. I clearly don't understand anything about what it means to be a physician leader. Can you explain it to me? Well, I spent three hours with him. All he talked about was his kids. And I said, that's fine. And we're supposed to prepare for the next meeting with which was with his subsequent physician leaders where I was supposed to go in and present this motion for deploying MDM. And we never did. He said, it'll be okay. We'll just come to the meeting. So I go to this meeting, prepared with all my notes, freaking out that you know the person that yelled at me, now he's the most senior person in the room. There's no one else to defend me. And we've got to get this motion passed. How is this going to happen? The meeting starts, he introduces me, he says, hey, this is Omar, and I get ready to start talking. And he says, hey, we've got this motion, Omar brought, brought it to me, I think it's super important, you guys should all pass it. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> like, aren't you the guy that just yelled at me like three weeks ago in front of everyone? And I felt embarrassed and ashamed and I thought I should just resign because I'm not cut out to be a CISO. And now, like you're my biggest champion, well, how did that happen? I've done that over and over again. Uh, one, one quick other tip on this is the way that people behave virtually is almost always going to be worse than the way that people behave in person. And the way people behave in person with multiple people is almost always going to be worse than how people behave in a one-on-one. -on -one. So right. if you want to build a relationship with someone, tell them you're going to take them out for lunch and pay for it. Buying someone lunch, the $15 investment that you make in buying them lunch is one of the best investments you can make in establishing a uh, BFF friendship. Well said. You, you got me at food. I love lunch. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where, where, where do you go for $15? I want to go there. This is like, I'm, I'm, I'm dating just, myself. So my earlier years as a CISO, that was possible seven, eight years ago before inflation kicked in. <laughs> I'm taking you to lunch, Omar. So <laughs> <laughs> nice one. We have we have a few minutes left. Should we? Um, is is there any burning in your mind, Mike? That you want to want to touch on? Uh, no, I, there was one that was really interesting. I was wondering if you could uh, clarify. You were talking about the CISOs should be hypersensitive to ownership. Using the right pronouns can solve more problems than uh, you or we think. Which I, I love that. I, I pretty much without being in the room at that time that you presented it, I was curious if you had some clarification on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think um, 
like the one thing we've sort of figured out and, and we, 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 we talk about this almost axiomatically, which definitely warms my heart compared to where we were as a, uh, as a discipline even four or five years ago, is we all know that risk is owned by the business. So that's good. It's not my risk. It's not the CISO's risk. It is the business's risk. Um, uh, so that's sort of one example of not using our, not using mine, your risk, your business, your people, your technology. Same thing with the technology team. It's not my systems, my risk, my patching, my program. It is your technology, your assets, your systems. You have to patch them. These are your vulnerabilities. We are here to help them. We're here to help identify them. We're help, here to help you figure out how to overcome them. And we're here to help you be, uh, be, be very successful. So just getting sort of that right is, is important. And the way that we name our dashboards is really important. So if we call it the security dashboard, okay, Omar and Mike and Sean can take care of that because they're the ones with security in their title. But if I call it whatever the name of the platform is dashboard and I write platform owner equals there and I don't mention anyone on the security team, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I guess that's mine. Right. And then like our job should be, how do I make my colleagues look as amazing as possible? Of course, I'm not allowed to lie. I'm not allowed to do anything unethical, but how do I make them look good? How do I get their scores to be higher? What things can I like remove? Because I want them to look good. I don't really want any of the credit. If they look good, if they do a good job, eventually the reports that I show to the board and others will, uh, will look good as well. Yeah, I absolutely love this point. And just a final word on that is that in the reality of interviewing for a CISO role, um, CISOs need to understand that most business uh, leaders are coming in with a pre-programmed bias that you were the representation of the department of no, N-O, not K-N-O-W. Yeah. And um, and it was because of this reason, primarily when we, when we polled business executives as to what their concerns were is because that yeah they always label things in a way that we don't understand it's always about them and their programs it's really about the business and the the use of mine versus yours uh has come up multiple times and um and it, you know we always try to instill that with CISOs. you know you should really need to be create awareness around your audience and the way that you're putting these things together they're actually valuable but they lose their immediately lose their valuable their value excuse me when uh, when you don't label it correctly yeah, yeah. It's just a simple thing. It's very subtle. Um, and, it's not an ego thing at all. It's just, it's kind of a lack of awareness. Yeah. And here's one thing just uh, along those lines, Mike, that CISOs can do to very quickly establish themselves as I'm here as a partner versus I'm here as a detractor and getting in the way and being sort of that old school CISO of NO mm -hmm. is find an opportunity where there is a risk in the business Maybe it's a lack of vulner certain vulnerabilities. Maybe they want to partner with someone. Maybe there's you know no private link to the cloud. Like whatever it is, find something. Understand the business value of taking that uh, that particular risk, and where there's a pretty big gap between the risk is down here and the business value is up here. Go to the business owner and say, "Hey, let me explain to you what some of these risks are." and ideally go quantify them using something like FAIR or some, some other mechanism and say, and I understand from talking to your team, the business value is significantly greater. Now you're showing them an ROI equation and you say to them, this feels like a really good risk to accept. 
What do you think? But right. it's your decision to make. So now they're like, what? Wait, did you just tell me that this is a good risk and you should accept this? Yes, I did say that. This way, when I come to you and say, this is a bad risk, I don't think you should accept it, but it's still your decision. They're likely going to say, I can trust this Omar guy because he doesn't just say no. He says no when he's genuinely looking out for me. Yep. Yep. That's great. This actually reminds me of a conversation I had with my teenagers. So uh, this is very similar. <laughs> funny how life, uh, real life transfers into uh, the business. Yes. I, I want to... Uh, one, one final thought, and I'm, I'm going to ask you, Mike, as well, second. Um, a lot of what you described isn't, isn't building your own team, isn't building a, a security operations center, it isn't deploying technologies and controls throughout the organization. It's building relationships, gaining alignment, having conversations, this, that one hour meeting with the head of cardiology, the, the one hour meeting with the, uh, with the, uh, chief CMO. Yeah. How, I guess the question for you, Omar is how do you, and I was just thinking if I start in a new business as a, as a new CEO in a company, I might have, might be given by the executive team some time to do that stuff. But if I'm in the role already, you still need that time. Why? Because new products are coming out. You're building new stuff. You're transforming stuff from on-prem to the cloud or back. <laughs> You're trying to adhere to a new regulation. So new people get involved, new pro problems need to get solved, new relationships need to get built. So how do you adequately allocate time to do those yeah. things and get a quote unquote approval, or at least an understanding from your, your peers that yeah. this is why I'm, what I'm doing, why I'm taking that time to do it. And then how do you, how do you measure the, that, that time and can communicate that that time was worthwhile? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, one, one of, uh, uh, I had a mentor that would always say to me, when it comes to people, there's really a few things that you're trying to do. It's the right person in the right role doing the best work of their career, becoming the best version of themselves. And so that was something, that was my mantra all the time. When I was leading the program, when I was meeting with my team, meeting with my directors, managers, individual contributors, I probably spent 40% of my time with my own team. And most of it through one-on-ones or Ask the CISO sessions, that was, I spent more time there than anywhere else. The second was business. Uh, spending time with, with internal business leaders and, and technology leaders. And so as I think about the right person in the right role, doing the best work of their careers, becoming the best version of themselves, I realized I could be thinking about threat models. I could be reviewing architecture diagrams and saying, no, do this, no add encryption here. What about this? I could be reviewing vulnerability reports. And there are many CISOs that do that. And they're probably way smarter than me because I realized I wasn't really good at that. I could do that if I needed to. But more importantly, I realized that there's lots of people that could do that on my team. And so I said, what is my role? Right. So if you think about a soccer team, there's someone that's a goalie. There's someone that's a in playing defense, offense, midfield. But there's only one goalie and there's only one coach. And so if my job is to be the coach, what are the things that only I can do? I may think 
that I could be a great defender and I could take free kicks and I could take penalty kicks and I could do headers. And maybe I did that way back when, when I was playing and I could run super fast, but I haven't really looked in the mirror and taken stock and realized that I'm overweight and I'm slow and all of those things. And I'm not the right person in here. So I could go in and out of respect, everyone will let me do it because I'm the boss. And I tell them that this is what I'm going to do. But someone looking from the outside in would be like, what a dumb coach. Like, what is he doing? Why does he just go find the fastest, smartest, sharpest, you know, best sort of uh, reflexes people that can go be players for each of those roles and go freaking be a coach. So I should pick the talent. I should define the plays. I should figure out the program. I should find how the team can compete. I should go find the right physical therapist to help the team heal. But I shouldn't be those people. I should be the coach helping the team succeed every single day. I need to make sure that there's funding and I need to make sure they've got the right jerseys and I've got need to make sure someone's arranging their travel. I need to do all of those. And what I realized is I sort of switched the way that I would do things. So I started as a newer leader by saying, what are the things that someone else can do? Let me get someone else to someone else to do them. But invariably what would happen is I would say, but I know how to do that. I've been technical before. I know what a firewall is. I know what this is. And I would do those things. But what would happen is I was spending so much time on the field, I wasn't actually being the coach. I wasn't actually doing the stuff that only the CISO could do. Those things were being neglected, the alignment, the business, the risk, the relationships, the right sort of metrics and outcomes, the board, none of those was I really excelling at. And so one day I said, well, what if I do the exact opposite? What if I say by default, every single thing that comes to me, I'm going to give to someone on my team. I'm not going to accept anything. Everything is going to go to someone on my team. And if I can't find anyone on my team to do it, then there's a good chance it might be my job. So I couldn't find anyone else to do the board deck. I couldn't find anyone else to build a relationship with a cardiologist because I looked at my team. No one had that role. And I'm like, I guess that's my job. I'm going to let my team do their job. A nice outcome of this, the team was excited because Omar stopped micromanaging them. I let them do the best work of their careers. I went and focused on my stuff. I would meet with vendors. I realized, why am I meeting with technology vendors? I'm not the one that's going to do the evaluation. I'm not steeped in DLP and next-gen firewalls and CSPM. And I'm barely keeping up with you know, the, the latest acronym that the industry organization comes up with. What, what am I doing? I got to stop kidding myself. I'm too old to be wearing cleats and running around like pretending I'm like 19 years old. That's not me. And so as I stopped doing that, I all of a sudden made space for doing the things that were super important. And I made them recurring meetings. And I targets for myself that I want to have 20 meetings with at least VP and higher business leaders in the next quarter and so on. And then I basically forced myself to make space and I ran out of space to do the things that I realized weren't really my job. I was trying to be the architect and the engineer and the manager and director. That's why I have architects and engineers and managers and director. I'm the freaking CISO. I should just be doing CISO work. Yep. Look at that. Look at that. Amen on that. Absolutely. And Michael, final word, I wanted to give you a space to say how, how CISOs can present themselves with this in mind when they're yeah actually i mean i'll i'll turn it a little bit differently i mean i um um yeah this is why we interview the executives in a company before we do a search right to, to omar's point right like there's always that one person that wants to take the ownership of it but it's a very limited view 
Um, and so the CISO walks in uh, hearing that view and then th needs to think they need to change their game plan for the rest of the, uh, the process, the interview process, or even when they're in the job. Um, and that's not the case. Uh, to Omar's point, it's go out and meet with everyone, meet with those 20 VPs and hear what their, their pains are. You're actually going to be so much more of an effective leader um, by taking many people's view for it um, versus just one. It's just, it's the reason why we, you know, I, I read like probably five or six books at a time. And I'm, I'm always schizophrenic, you know, like running around trying to figure, trying to soak up as much material as I can uh, all at once. Uh, and, um, and so I, I think it's, um, I think it's important for CISOs to realize that, that it's, um, yes, find your BFFs, um, focus in on some of the, the, the key attributes that make you you and find your superpower, all that, but also just meet with and, and, and force yourself, uh, to Omar's point, to, to really up-level um, your, your interactions uh, and pull yourself out of the weeds. I think that's probably the hardest thing for many CISOs, especially the ones with technical backgrounds. It's a comfort level, right? It's not, it's not, this is yes. supposed to be fun. That's why I always tell people uh, when they're looking for a job. Um, this is the first time in the history that CISOs have really in mass looked for a role. Somewhere between 30 and 40% are actively or proactively looking. It's, it's, wow. it's unheard of, unheard of. Um, but I always tell them like, Look, guys, just take a breath. You're actually not supposed to be good at this, right? I am. I, you know, people will argue whether I am or not, but, uh, but I'm supposed to be good at this. Like, you're not supposed to be good at this. Um, your superpowers lay somewhere else. So, just take a step back, realize who you want to be, and uh, and and go and go towards that goal. Um, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of mistakes, and that's why we're all human. So, uh, no, I think it's great. These are amazing points that Omar is bringing up. So so relevant to today's yeah. market. Absolutely. And, and thank you, Omar, for many things. Yeah. One, pulling, pulling that group of 75, somebody probably helped you pull the group of 75, but you, you engaged with them. You surfaced these learnings. Thank you for sharing them on LinkedIn. Thank you for giving us examples and, uh, yeah. and your insights uh, from all your experience and, and what you uncovered with them. And I think for me, it all, all boils back down to community, right? Uh, yeah. you, you do a lot to give back doesn't mean anybody else should uh, yeah. wait for you to connect with them. They should do the same. Find find your peers that are close yes. to you, industry, geography, whatever it is. There's learning to be had from each other. And, uh, and I thank you, Omar, for uh, having this conversation with us to help, help us learn Absolutely. some more. My, uh, Michael. Pleasure. Great, great doing this series with you, my friend. Yes, and, you too. Uh, we'll do, do another one in roughly a month. And... Yep. Uh, have another good chat about something, uh, something CISO fun on the CISO. <laughs> got it. Yeah. Happy, happy holidays to you both. Yes. Um, happy you holidays, guys. Thanks for doing this. This was, this was really good. Thanks for uh, the podcast and the series. You guys do real service to the community. Uh, fun. Appreciate fun. it. Thanks, Omar. And of course, if you're listening or watching, please uh, subscribe, share with your friends and enemies. And, and enemies. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll... Well, Michael, I'll see you on the next one. Thanks again, everybody. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it 
with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this show and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand with our conversations, you can sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.